your host, Raphael Harry here. In this episode, we play back some of the best moments from some of our women guests in celebration of Women's History Month. And if you enjoy a particular segment, go and check out full episodes featuring these wonderful and inspiring ladies. Featuring Gali Gonzalez. Um, so I, yeah, I, I didn't grow up in the city. I actually grew up um, in a kibbutz. It's a sh- socialist, um, I guess, agricultural commune. Um, doesn't necessarily have to be an agriculture, but it, it is. It does share. It's everything is about socialism. Everything is about sharing everything. Um, I even until age three, when they actually stopped this, um, I was living in a children home. So that's where I slept. Oh, wow. um, my brothers were either older than me. So they obviously remember more than I do of the children home. Um, and so we all grew up um, with other kids and we they were kind of like our brothers and sisters. We're still very good friends with them, even though we moved away. Um, but, uh, so it was a completely different environment than Andres. Um, but my memory was more, um, when I remember, and, and of course there's a ton of memories, so it, it takes a lot to just yeah. boil it down to one, but yeah, one you, that you is, know, if you have two, you can do two. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think one was uh, when my grandmother would come visit us. She actually lived in Tel Aviv, so she's, she lived in the city. Um, and so she, she could take just a bus uh, to the kibbutz where we were um, and get there. So sometimes she'll come. I, didn't, I wouldn't even know that she's supposed to come. And I would come back from school and I would go and she'll be there in the kitchen like making these amazing Yemenite cookies and I'm just like oh my god this I'm so excited <laughs> there's going to be cookies and my grandma is here and that means good food and you know it's just um it was always great to just be coming home and seeing her there on the kitchen table just working the dough and you know just the smell of the mm. cardamom and you know, everything about it was just the, you know, it, it just stuck in my memory. Yeah, the <laughs> it, aroma of love. It's was, the aroma of love, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, and, and I mean, now that I'm older, you know, I knew that sometimes she would come there because she was just tired of my grandpa. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, <laughs> also for us in my culture, the mother will always be there to help with the kids of her kids, oh. you know. So even my mom is here now mm-hmm. helping us, you know, um, now that it's a little bit safer for her to travel. Yeah. she's She came here to help us a little bit with the kids <laughs> because it's been um, stressful with the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's just that role of the mother and the grandmother. Uh, so, yeah, so my memory was just having my grandmother there just, you know, baking, being there with us, it was great. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, that's making me feel hungry already. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Should have brought some cookies. <laughs> <laughs> this is from episode 50 featuring Verena Thuna. So why, why is it so important to, you know, 
the differentiate between northerners and southerners? Well, so one thing is soccer, right? Like you usually football, 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 yeah, football. Because if you it's are football. supporting a northerner team, then you usually don't also support a southern team, right? Like you, you will find very few people who support like BFLB and Bayern at the same time. And if you do know someone, then you have to seriously question them. I think how that happened. Um, That's true. I don't think I've ever met any anyone who supports BVB, which is Borussia Dortmund for the, um, every um, for regular Americans. And um, yeah, I've never seen anyone supporting Borussia and Bayern except on the continental scene. Yeah. Yeah, and I think also I think the Northerners um, tend to pride themselves and um, not having as as much of an accent, I guess. Like, the further south you go, the more people you hear, hear speaking with more of an accent. Mm. Like a local or regional accent. We do have that in the north, but I guess, like, people um, want to think that we don't. <laughs> when you come from the north, you want to think that you don't have that. <laughs> so, <laughs> at least that's, that's yeah. Oh, interesting. Where I grew up. Interesting. <laughs> so, with that being said, what do you consider your favorite childhood memory? So that's kind of hard. I, I have a lot of good childhood memories. Yeah, you can throw two in there. Um, like even that would still be hard, right? So I'm just going to make a more of a broader statement. So okay. even though I m maybe was complaining when I was a child and always going on holiday um, somewhere where we would drive to, like the Netherlands or like Denmark, um, we would like go camping a lot when I was little. Um, and I'm, I'm sure I was complaining at the time. Right. But mm -hmm. now I look at back at that really favorably. Um, and another thing is when, uh, I was growing up, uh, sometimes we didn't go on vacation during the summer. And so instead my parents bought me like a season ticket for the local pool and I would just go off and be at the pool every day. Um, now that I don't have the possibility or the ability to do that, like that's another really um, like great childhood memory that I have. This segment is from episode 51, featuring Graciela Tiscarano Sato. I'll tell you one of my favorite childhood memories. We had um, the house that they bought, like the first time they ever bought a house. It was in Evans, Colorado. And so, you know, imagine your typical tract housing, right? So you've yeah. got a street with all these houses that look the same and they're like, you know, one level in a basement. And so we actually bought a house, Rafael, on the third street of this development, which was going to be like, you know, 20 streets. So we got in pretty early. And one of my favorite memories is, is for years watching all these houses get built on the next block at the next block at the next block and visiting the construction site with my siblings after the construction workers went home. Oh. Like, oh, here's a pile of wood. <laughs> and so we would drag this wood home. I get a, hey, puppy, check it out. And I have these two by fours and they're like four inches, four feet long. And, <laughs> and we'd find, you know, plywood and we, would, you know, it's just a junk pile. So we yeah. just take it with us. And the reason I'm remembering this with your question is because we ended up just building things like 
well, my, you know, let's make a little tiny picnic table, like a kid-sized picnic table or a little footstool, or we'll use the wood to make a planter for your mom for the tomatoes. And so we have this unlimited supply of construction materials. And so my childhood was nails, hammers, learning to use a saw and like really just building um, like uh, we built a little candy store. My dad even built a candy store so my sister and I could start selling candy out of our driveway. Wow. So we did entrepreneurship very yeah. early. We learned to go buy Tootsie Rolls for, you know, two cents and sell them for a nickel. And so we literally like we built with all the slumber, a little candy store. And I remember my dad paint, it was blue. My dad painted Selena and Grace's candy store. And it was like, you know, Charlie Brown, the cartoon with the, mm -hmm. you know, psychology help five cents. It would look like that. Um, and so that's a really cool memory of just always building things and being creative and what could we make with this stuff, right? And, and then also, you know, how that became um, a little storefront so that we could, you know, buy some candy and make some profit and bring candy to the neighborhood. So those, all of that was wrapped up in that, that that early constructed neighborhood that provided us hours of fun and creativity. And the room went quiet, like, oh, damn. Because now the Colonel has to say in front of everybody, uh, Lieutenant Tuscarino, you know, I can't assign you that aircraft because, you know, the law, <laughs> women are not allowed in combat airplanes. I mean, like he had to say it, right? Everybody had to hear it. And then I said, yes, sir, I understand. I just want everybody to know that I qualified for that, you know, because that's what I do. I like, I want to make sure it gets set. Mm. And then I said, I'll take the KC-135 refueling tanker. And that's how I ended up in the tankers. And then we watched the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth person behind me all get their fighter jet assignments. Wow. So that's, that's the, not so much discrimination as it was that I legally was not able to get assigned to go there right mm -hmm. but then two years but, later but how, how did that feel like at that moment to you how did i feel yeah at that moment I, I felt i felt like the airplane doesn't care about your gender your your sex at all <laughs> the airplane mm -hmm. really doesn't care those are artificial barriers put there by dudes to keep us out and the guys are all just telling themselves that only they can do it Right. Yeah. That was really obvious to me because, um, you know, it just was. And, you know, remember, I had a female pilot at pilot training. So I already knew that she was flying not only that airplane, but she was also flying the T-38, which is basically like an F-5, another fighter. She was already flying supersonic jets. So it wasn't that women couldn't. It was that Congress, you know, representing the um, paternalistic views of American society didn't want to see their women in combat, even though, guess what? We were already there. That's right. right. Uh, but let's just make it official. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you suck it up and you go do the assignment that you get. Um, but then the real shock happened over Iraq after Desert Storm. And then it was Operation Southern Watch. So we were there patrolling the skies of southern Iraq to keep Saddam from launching his MiGs and killing his own people. Basically, we're preventing genocide, which is what he was doing. So we went in there to, to, to keep the MiGs on the ground and, and not let him kill his own people, right? Yep. The, the Southern no-fly zone. I was the third crew to go in to do that just after the war ended. So um, we flew combat sorties one, two, or three every day. 
And after I think 25 sorties, the Colonel then has the discretion to um, nominate a crew for an air medal, you know, for air operations. Mm -hmm. Because yeah, we got chased by MiGs, AWACS would tell us there's a MiG coming and then we'd have to retrograde and get out of there. Enemy fire was expected. That's, that's the definition of the 01 sortie, right? Well, guess what happened? Our package went to the Pentagon with three other packages. You know, the first four crews had flown 37, 40 something. The package came back in our file, air medal for this crew, air medal for this crew, air medal for that crew. So four medals for each air crew. And we got a letter for our crew that our crew could not receive an air medal because there was a female on the crew. Wow. So imagine yourself on a crew. <laughs> Mm -hmm. That's already flown the 37 combat sorties. You already did it. Yeah. And now you as a guy can't get recognized because they put a woman on your plane. <laughs> so tell me how this helps anybody's morale. I mean, that was so shocking to me. I was like, how did you like miss the fact that I'm not supposed to be here. Obviously you needed me to be here because you trained me and you sent me. Yes. And now you just don't want to admit that I did it by actually recognizing the work. And it could have died there. It could have been really sad that we didn't get an air medal. And, you know, my poor three guys on my crew also would get, you know, lose. But the Colonel's like, this is ridiculous. You know, uh, he appealed it. He sent the package back to the Pentagon and something like, I don't know, seven months after we redeployed back home, we finally got our air medals sent to our base and we had the ceremony and I got my air medal. And it means a lot to me because of everything I'm telling you. And I have to tell you this, this, the flying happened August of 92. Congress changed the law allowing women to be in combat and combat assignments and combat airplanes in the following year in the spring of 93. So I got this air medal, you know, like basically like they were deciding at the Pentagon whether or not to give it yeah. to our crew as the law was changing. And so they finally felt safe that they could give it because the law was going to change, right? If the law hadn't changed, I don't think we would have gotten the medal. Wow. Um, but I recently confirmed with the Air Force Personnel Center that uh, this whole crazy story I just told you, I'm the first Hispanic female aviator in the, in the Air Force to earn an Air Medal for combat air operations. I didn't know that. Um, somebody asked that question, so I, I asked the question of the Personnel Center. But that's how crazy it was, you know? So I don't know. It was never as much a discrimination as it was what was allowed and wasn't allowed this segment is from episode 53 featuring unena tassie they were posted in lagos so that's where i was born but i grew up in ibadan because my dad was transferred to late my although my dad was in lagos but he wanted i guess like um, ibadan had more stability so he wanted us to grow in a very more stable environment and so I would say we spent our lives in Ibadan like I can't really speak Igbo so if anyone speaks Igbo tonight I won't even understand anything but I speak Yoruba and I write Yoruba um, and we schooled in Ibadan as well as well as in, um, in Lagos. Um, so yeah that's a little about me. I 
my first experience with police was one of those days when you know how in december you know everybody travels home mm-hmm. and it was one of those trips where we were all traveling home and my dad was happened to be tri- be driving the car and i remember we got to this checkpoint somewhere in Ijebode and some Nigerian police had, you know, set up the whole road block, um, blockage thing. And they're like, okay, come out. And my dad had just bought a brand new Mercedes Benz in those days. Yeah. So, and then they were like, come out, come out of the car, you know, where give up, you know, come, come out of the car. Who, who are you? And that kind of stuff. And my dad was really upset. Um, my dad, you know, was really upset. Like, why are you cussing? Why are you stopping, you know, me and why are you cussing? Is why are you harassing me and my family, basically? And they, they were asking my dad where he got the car from. You know, and my dad was like, "I'm in Nigeria and I'm working, so I can afford to buy myself a car." And they, he had not even pulled the whole "I'm a custom officer" card mm-hmm. at that time. So they yeah. were still, and then they were like, "Okay, if you want us, to, if you want us to let you go, then you have to set to loss." So my dad was really upset. He was like, do you know that I'm a custom officer myself and I know that you're not supposed to do this? You know, this is an embarrassment to the Nigerian police. Um, I, we were all scared, you know. We thought maybe they were going to shoot at my at dad because, you know, they had guns and all that. But the moment my dad then told them that I'm an officer like yourself and I understand that, you know, it's December you guys can ask, you know, can you also, I understand that you're checking and all that stuff, but you should not be harassing people this way. And so then they changed the whole thing. So, okay, I'll well, find out something for Christmas, you know, settle us for Christmas. And <laughs> my dad was like, no, that you should ask, you know, basically you should ask nicely. And I think that's, that for me was where I, I was really worried about the whole thing where again, I was just a child. So I didn't really know how deep this whole thing was that yeah. is deeply rooted in the system and so we moved on and we got to the village i was we were all traumatized and i remember that was the last time that we ever actually traveled home with, wow. with him mm-hmm. yeah because it was just scary we didn't want to go anywhere because you know why would nigeria why would they be harassing us um then the next one i'll have with them was when we were actually it was the day i was coming to america the my trip to america here uh, we from around the Ajawa state area, the police had stopped us again. Remember my parents were both in customs. So this time it was my mom <laughs> and my mom went alaye with them. My mom was like, you know, who, who, who's picking when they stop like this, you know, who get this picking, blah, blah, blah. If she miss her flight, I go make sure I, you know, scatter on her. <laughs> 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 My dad is the most civil one. My mom is like area scatter. I mean, she grew up in a jungle, so. <laughs> So, but yeah, that that was, uh, you know, my encounters with Nigerian police. But after that, it's just been, yeah, we've been here in America, so I haven't really dealt with them. This segment is from episode 54 with Brenda Zarai Zuniga. Because I'm a raging extrovert and I love being around people, I love people, I love talking to people, it was... It was hard for me at first to not even be able to go out to the grocery store because I get my energy from being around people. And so there was a time in the first couple months of the pandemic where I fell into, I call it my one week depression because I had been working so hard every day 
as a way to like kind of cope with it too. And I decided to take two days off. And so I thought, you know what? No, I need to self-care. I'm just going to eat some and just take two days off. Well, those two days off turned into three days, turned into four days of still in my pajamas, turned into five days. Now I haven't even showered in five days, turned into every dish in the kitchen dirty, not washing anything. And just this depression hit where I had no joy. My anxiety was through the roof. I didn't know what what to do. I didn't even know where to start, where to begin. Um, and I didn't even know it was that bad until I was FaceTiming with my sister, which I FaceTimed with her once a week. And I remember it was our weekly FaceTime, and I told her, oh, my God, look how crazy my hair looks. And I did some, like, weird hair thing. Like, I flipped it to the side. And she goes, yeah when's the last time you showered? And I genuinely could not answer that question. Wow. And I was like, oh my God. And I, th- and, I, and I was thinking, and my sister starts teasing me and she goes, please, you don't, you can't even remember, please tell me it was at most three days ago. She goes, please. And I looked at her and I just went, Gabs, I'm sorry. Like I, no, it was longer than three weeks. I mean, three days ago. I don't, I don't remember. And she's like, Oh my gosh, when's the last time you changed out of your pajamas? And I just went, I don't know. Oh my God. And it was my sister who was who's 13, giving me that mirror back of, Hey, you know, this is, this is what I'm seeing. I don't know if you are, but this is what I'm seeing. And so when she said that I immediately, after we hung up, I immediately took a shower and it wasn't easy. It was hot. Like taking that, like my arms felt so heavy. I was like, oh, I don't want to wash my hair. I go into my kitchen and I was like, oh my God, every dish is dirty. This, how did I let this happen? But I remembered to be so kind to myself in that moment. And I called a crisis hotline. And I, cause my therapist was, um, I remember I called a crisis hotline and I said, hey, I did not realize that I just went, that I'm going through a, a depression right now, um, you know, and I, I need, need someone to talk to about this. And so they helped and, and they were telling me like baby steps, you know, like, okay, great, you showered, that's great. Now, you know, try and do your dishes and then baby steps, you know, um, tomorrow, do something more around the house, you know, get, get a little active, go outside, go in and get some sun. And so they helped me. And once I got that groove, I was able to get myself back. But even me being a mental health activist, someone who's worked on her mental health since she was a teenager, you know, and, and who has her own mindfulness coaching company, I'm still human in this pandemic still affected me you know in the way where i fell into a week-long depression didn't even realize mm-hmm. you know yeah and that it's so important without my sister mirroring that back to me i don't know how long that would have that would have happened this segment is from episode 58 featuring natalie biasnia you know africa has so many tribes oh, yeah. and i think we want to break it into colonial times all these names and all these dialects and all these you know, a lot. religions 
that we have, a lot. you know, it becomes a little, it becomes a little tedious. So Njamena, uh, the N is silent. silent. It's just okay. like you in your country, you have some names that start with the letter N yes. and it's silent. Right? Mm -hmm. so, That's true. So yeah. That's yeah, true. and you you said my last name right, Beasnael. You know, so which is yeah, beautiful. It has name. A yes. Thank you, thank you. So you were born in Jamena, and you're the first person that I've ever talked to that was born in that city. So can you please introduce myself and the audience to your place of birth, and you know just um, tell us a little bit about there. About Jamena. Yeah. Well, well, I come from a country that is uh, vastly the Sahara Desert. And uh, Jamena, for the longest, has been dubbed the capital. Um, and prior to, during colonial times, it was called Fort Lamy. As you um, know, French was colonized by the French. Yes. Um, uh, I, I say French was colonized. Chad was colonized Chad, by, the yeah, French. by the French. Yeah. And we have two official languages, which are Arabic and uh, French. Oh, uh, okay. If I want to describe Njamena to you, it's mostly the desert. I think we have so many buildings now and there's not too much highlight on some of the most beautiful architectural work that we have there. But because of the um, Arab influence, some of the buildings look like buildings that you would find somehow in Dubai or North Africa, the more Northern African countries like Libya, Tunisia, and uh, some of the rest. Um, if I should describe Chad or Jamena in one word, I would say it's almost like an excursion between going, if you live here in America, going to Arizona, maybe New Mexico, mm. uh, you know, with a mixture of the heat that you get from Texas, from Dallas. Oh, and it, Yeah, it gets a little windy, too. It gets a little windy. So, you know, you see a lot of people covering up in Chad. I know the last time that I went, um, even my sunglasses were melting. So it was that hot. Mm. But I think there's a special remedy um, to where I come from, um, the people there are a little bit more humble than needed. You can never be too humble, yeah. but the humility is what strikes me whenever um, I land in Chad. And sometimes it's, uh, I'm talking about the people right now. It's it, sometimes it's mis mistaken for weakness. Mm -hmm. And I, I that would be you know, the city in one word. You have to, you can't talk about a city without its people. And that's, you know, where I come from. That's right. This segment is from episode 59, featuring Mensima Shabazz, PhD. So, uh, last year there was uh, a story that caught my eye from uh, the Ghanaian uh, news coming from Ghana, when um, a few prominent women made public that they were sexually assaulted and molested while... Um, while they were very young and it led to a lot of discussion online and people uh, this was around when the Ghanaian government was talking about introducing sex education in, in the school curriculums uh, I think it was primary schools that they wanted to do that with and all of a sudden there was this formation and um, this, this information attacks, uh, 
religious institutions jumped in with the wrong information, of course, and uh, leading to the government asking, uh, government claiming that they postponed the, the decision, but they didn't say it was cancelled. But I, I, I was fascinated that um, a lot of prominent Ghanaian women spoke up, made public that this had happened to them, and you know it was similar to what I'd read in your book. And from what I'm familiar with also in Nigeria, it's, it wasn't like a surprise to me, knowing what I know from uh, from just what I know. It's, it's, not, it's not a surprise because I also know when something like this became uh, popular, also in, uh, not popular, but when a lot of people made it public in Nigeria and other African countries and it was being discussed, it had a similar reaction, but the only mm -hmm. difference was that there was no sex education talk. So, uh, do you think it was a missed opportunity for Ghana not to go forward with the introduction of sex education in schools? I think it's a missed opportunity. Um, every time we cover up violence against women, mm. it, it, because if we were to flip the coin and imagine the government hearing that women were, you know, assaulting young men, what would they have done? They wouldn't have tabled it. They would have put out a message out to say, these women are doing X, Y, and Z, and it's horrifying, et cetera, et cetera. When we flip the tables, the women always, uh, you know, young girls, we, it, it have to be silent yeah. until you know, we give you permission to talk mm -hmm. or until, I mean, where would you go? Uh, who would solve that problem, right? Sex education is important. In my own experience, one of the things that struck me was that because in our home, um, it wasn't within our, my frame of reference that people could be violent in that manner. Yes, I never was prepared for it. Right. If somebody invited me to his home, especially when my parents and, you know, my family had said entrusted me to his care, mm -hmm. I expected that he would care for me the way my family would care for anybody in our home. But because of the void in uh, explaining these uh, situations in schools to girls, we almost walk in blind into these situations. You don't see it coming, exactly. right? It, it, it's just right in front of you and you, you don't have any recourse. And I think it's horrifying. Jeez. You know, that I, think, I think the government missed an opportunity to do the right thing. And I always say this in most of my teachings is when we are beginning to uh, address issues in our society. And this one says, oh, but we have to wait because of this, or we can't do it because of this. The question is, is it right or wrong? Is it right or wrong that men are able to do this to young girls? If your answer is no, then you approach it a different way. 
But we know what the true real answer is. Mm -hmm. It is wrong. Yes. Take the steps to correct it. This segment is from episode 63, featuring Ness Rain. So since getting out, have you still been, are you still in the industry or did you just take a break? Well, what happened then is I got, uh, <laughs> I I wasn't on an exhibition. I ended up on a different kind of um, um, audition. Mm -hmm. It was for MTV as a host. And I went there and it was cool and everything. They liked me and I went to a different uh, um, audition again for hosting for a TV because it was like, oh, wow, I can actually do this and talk and get paid for talking and yep. uh, connect with people and communicate is something I love to do because, as I said earlier, I was into journalism anyway. So one audition, they liked me. They offered me a job, but I had to move somewhere I didn't want to move. And so, yes, then I started um, creating basically demo videos and sending them out to different um, TV stations all over and to people that I had met previously uh, through the music. And at some point I was um, contacted and I always was like doing basically like uh, interviewing celebrities for different TV stations, radio stations, sometimes mag magazine as well in the UK. Mm. And that's how basically I built my, my portfolio and I got my name out there. Oh, that's cool. So, and then I went back to music and then I got screwed over again. Uh -oh. <laughs> and then I decided to do the independent thing. And three years ago, I quit music <sighs> for good as an artist. This segment is from episode 65 with Desri Peterkin Bell. When did you begin to identify with the with, with the purpose of the part you know that you you now see yourself on? I, I, so for me, and I tell young people this all the time. I do a lot of speeches, um, and I talk to lots of of young people who often find themselves in the midst of making some major life decisions. And so, um, for me, I had a quarter life crisis. Uh, which really does exist. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was the first person in my family to graduate college, uh, to go to grad school. Um, I had gotten accepted to law school. And so I thought I wanted to be a lawyer and uh, spent uh, almost a year at working at one of the biggest law firms in the world, uh, in the country, um, uh, in, in New York City and Times Square. And I was working on a US tobacco case and I was working on another case uh, that was very well known at the time, Christie's and Sotheby's price fixing case. Essentially rich people stealing from other rich people, which I just did not get because I didn't come up with money. So <laughs> that part. But whatever. Um, and I remember sitting across from a woman who had visible effects of smoking. Um, and she was a woman who was a black woman. Um, and I was on the other side of the table. And she was looking at me as if I didn't belong or if I, you know, like I was on the wrong team and I felt like crap. And mm. I went home uh, that night and I cried to my mother and I told my mother, even though I'm making all this money and this is a great big law firm and all that great stuff yeah. that I just wasn't happy. Um, I didn't feel like I was fulfilling my purpose. 
And, um, and she said to me, you know, we do what makes you happy, you know, and then everything else will fall into place. And so I walked out of the law firm and I did what most people don't do, which is I went back and got a master's in pol public policy and began my official journey into government. I wanted to understand this thing called government and, and how it was supposed to communicate with its people, what its role and responsibility was to its constituents, um, how public policy can help to shape people's lives, mm -hmm. um, and then how you can advocate from the inside, um, not only from the outside. From the outside and, yeah. Um, and so that is essentially what helped to define my my career. Um, and that's what I'm doing right now, which is but now I'm on the outside, which is even more exciting. And the last but not the least, you may remember this quote from the last compilation that we gave you back in January from Verena Tuna in episode 50. I think my shirt today says it all. Don't be a lady, be a legend. Mm. And why is that? Um, well, the whole idea of being a lady is overrated. And it's much better to be a legend. I, I'm not in disagreement, but <laughs> that wasn't the answer I was expecting. No, but also, like, in light of current events, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away yesterday. The right. notorious RBG. Yes. Rest in power. And so that was a little bit of shock of the system. I didn't expect to be so emotionally impacted by it. Yeah. But she is definitely one of those people who did not worry about being a lady and became a legend. That's she did right. not worry about upsetting people with her stance on equality, even in her early, early uh, parts of her career where she argued um, in front of the Supreme Court, I believe it was the Supreme Court of all men, and got them to agree to her point on equality. Um, she did not worry about how that got perceived um, and how that was reflected on her as a woman. And she fought for equality through the entirety of her career and therefore became a legend. Perfect. Perfect. 